I'll read the passage before you dig into it. And if you want, feel free to stand with me. If you'd like to stay seated, feel free to stay seated. But if you want and are willing and able, stand with me as I read 1 Corinthians 10, 23 to 11, 1. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you, and for the sake of conscience. Do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me, as I am of Christ. May you be seated. And Father, as we come before this text and before your word, which is just next up in our study through 1 Corinthians, We ask that you would have appointed this passage for this day to build us up that we may praise your name. We pray the same for the kids meeting in Children's Church, that they would be built up and that you would teach them through your word. Be gracious to us today, we pray, Lord, in the name of your Son. Amen. The big news this last week, of course, was that Queen Elizabeth II died at 96 years old. And do not worry, I do not have any hot takes for you on the passing of the Queen. It is impressive, her reign spanning 70 years and over a dozen prime ministers, over a dozen presidents, multiple popes. What, of course, interests me maybe about her is that she claimed and was a follower of Jesus Christ. And I wondered, as I was reflecting on her life, how do you do that? In her role, in her position, with her scope of influence and responsibility, her power, her, the total freedom she had, and also the constraints upon her as a head of state, how did she navigate being a follower of Jesus Christ, I assume she wanted to have a good witness and reputation. And yet we know from all the discourse following that not everybody is united in their opinion of the queen. And it's probably true for anybody. The more public position you have, the more divisive are going to be the responses to you. You cannot please everybody. You cannot have a good witness before everybody. 
But as I was thinking about then us as a, as a church and as Christians, we want to represent Christ well wherever we are. We may not have the position, the authority, the power, the influence of the queen. Nobody does. But where we are, we want to represent Christ well. And how do we do that with the freedom that we have? And that is the major concern in our passage this morning. Given the freedom that we have in Christ, free from the law, free from the penalty and the power of sin, how do we use our Christian liberty to bring him praise? And my goal this morning really is just to convince you of this one point, and this is the major application, the driving point in all of it, that our Christian liberty should be used for the glory of God and the good of others. I'll say it again. Our Christian liberty should be used for the glory of God and the good of others. And my whole goal this morning is to convince you of that and then to try and apply that a little bit because I think that's what Paul is doing in this section of 1 Corinthians. That's what his major goal is, is to convince his readers, to convince all of us that our liberty should be used for these purposes, for the glory of God and the good of others. The first one I unpack, what do we mean by Christian liberty? It's something we all have in Christ. We have something called Christian liberty. It means, again, we have been freed. We are no longer under the old covenant law of Moses. Christ has fulfilled that on our behalf. We are free from the power of sin, the, the penalty, the punishment of sin, of condemnation and death. We are made alive in Christ. We are united to him. We are adopted as God's children. And we have freedom then to follow the Lord and follow God. And we have great flexibility in that to do it as we see fit. And that may be the surprising part for you because you so often think of religion as a list of rules. But in the actuality, as we follow Christ, we are given great freedom. There are some things that are clearly outlawed for us. And through Scripture in the New Testament, there are certain things that are clearly defined as sin. And you can read through your New Testament and you'll find what those things are. They're often sin lists that Paul will list out for application. And things like sexual immorality and theft and greed and coveting and gluttony and gossip. So there are things that are clearly sinful that are out of bounds for us as followers of Jesus Christ. And we know that. But then there's this whole other realm of gray where we live a lot of our lives and we have to make decisions on how we live because we are not given explicit, clear direction from Scripture on how we're supposed to handle such things. Scripture doesn't address them directly. So what kind of music do we listen to? What kind of games do we play? The kind of house that we live in? A famous example, what about alcohol? How are we to approach that? There are all sorts of areas, matters of just plain living in the Christian life that fall under the category of Christian liberty. And we are given wide flexibility in how we approach that. And that gets us to our passage here, where Paul wants to walk the Corinthians through their own use of Christian liberty. If you are here last week, you know Paul clearly outlawed, he said we cannot participate in idolatry. 
And that was a concern for the Corinthians. So in Corinth, as we talked about last week, there would be, uh, or idolatry was common. As you eat meals with people, as you go to the temple for social events, uh, as you're invited over for dinner, very often people would take part in either very intentional or even casual idolatry. They would offer up food and say, this is an offering to the gods. And they would just kind of casually even participate in worship and giving honor to false gods or Greek gods, Roman gods. So very often at a meal, as you raise your glass of wine, you offer it up to Dionysus. And that was a common thing as part of their meals. So Paul clearly outlined for Christians, you cannot take part in or participate in idolatry. Because we worship Christ alone. Well, that makes sense. But all sorts of questions then come up as you try and live and move in that world, in that context. How do we do that? How do we exercise our Christian liberty? So Paul's going to answer a couple specific contextual questions of how they're supposed to navigate complex matters of life. And then for us, we can take application from that and figure out some guiding principles as we figure out how we exercise our own Christian liberty. This is a complicated passage. The the flow of logic is difficult. So I'm going to kind of present it out of order. What I want to do first is just give three guiding principles that come out of this text that Paul gives for navigating Christian liberty. Three guiding principles. And then I want to show how he applies those to two scenarios that he'll bring up. And then we'll wrap up briefly by thinking, how do we apply this for matters of Christian liberty in our own life? Make sense? All right, so I'll try and prove that our Christian liberty should be used for the glory of God and the good of others. And first, let's go through three guiding principles that Paul gives. The first can be found in verses 23 and 24, then also in 32 and 33. And what Paul's saying in both of these sets of verses is that we should seek the spiritual benefit of others. There is a guiding principle for us that we should seek the spiritual benefit of others. In all that we do, when we're making ethical decisions or asking questions of how we should live and how we should apply Christian principles, here's one that should guide us, that we should seek the spiritual benefit of others. Meaning, we should ask questions like, how will what I do affect others? Will it build people up? Will I cause offense? Will what I do make the gospel more attractive? Will people be more likely to accept the Christian faith based on my actions? These are all questions we should be asking ourselves in our normal daily life. We should seek the spiritual benefit of others. So we see this in verses 23 and 24. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Then, a few verses later, Paul says... Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. So Paul begins here with a kind of a code, a slogan that the Corinthians were familiar with. All things are lawful, which is a way of saying, I have complete freedom. I have Christian liberty. All things are lawful for me, which is, again, a way of saying, In Christ, I'm free from sin, free from the law, so I can do whatever I want. And Paul's not going to directly contradict that. Because as we'll see, Paul, throughout his writing in Scripture, upholds Christian liberty strongly. He's very concerned about adding unnecessary law or guilt or burden. So he's not going to contradict it, but he's going to say, maybe, but there's some other considerations too. You may be free to do all things, but there's another question you should ask yourself. This is what you're doing. Build others up. Does what you're doing seek the spiritual growth of others? Is it helpful? 
So in our decisions and in our whole lives, we are not to be selfish, only thinking about what does it do for me, but we should think of others. So Paul says, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. In everything you do, ask yourself, will this be good for my neighbor? Notice what Paul says in verse 32 33, give no offense to Jews, Greeks, and the church of God. Now, who does that encompass? Everyone. So Paul's saying, give no offense to the Jewish people, the people of our faith, the background of our faith. Give no offense to Greeks, which is another way of saying Gentiles. So Jews and non-Jews, give no offense to them, and no offense to the church of God, who we are, Christians who are a different category. And that's Paul's way of saying, don't offend anybody. In all that you are doing, part of our goal should be to give no offense to no one. To anyone. Don't put any roadblock. Don't unnecessarily alienate people. And immediately some of you might notice attention. How do we do that? That seems impossible. In fact, elsewhere, Paul himself will say that we should offend people. Galatians 1.10. Am I trying to please men or trying to please God? If I were trying to please men, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. I wouldn't be preaching the gospel. And Paul's going to say there, my goal is to please God. Jesus himself in John 15 says, if you're going to follow me, the world might hate you. It's a paraphrase. The world hated Jesus, so don't be surprised when the world hates you. So we have elsewhere in Scripture that says, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you're going to cause offense to people. But Paul's point here is, don't cause offense because you're being an idiot. It's basically, again, paraphrase. Let the truth of Jesus Christ and Scripture itself, let that be offensive. Don't be unnecessarily offensive in your own actions. There's a difference. If people are going to be offended by what we believe, let it happen. Don't back down from the truth of Scripture. But don't go out of your way to cause offense. In fact, go out of your way to not cause offense. And I believe if we studied this passage and looked at it over and over and meditate on it, we would end up deleting a lot of what we put on social media. And we'd be really careful about what we share. And we'd be far more careful about who we follow. Because there are a lot of people, even those who claim the name of Jesus Christ, who have built their platform off of offense. They might say truth and say the right things, but do it in such a manner that reveals that their goal is offending and gaining followers through animosity. And this passage would say, knock it off. Church, we need to know the difference between someone who is boldly yet humbly standing for truth, know the difference between that and someone who's being a loudmouth to stir up a fight and gain a following. There's a difference between making a humble stand for the truths of the faith and making a name for yourself by stirring up hatred. A Christian won't be afraid to offend if necessary, but he won't also look for it. We are to live our lives in such a way that we actively seek not to offend others. And that's true when we make ethical decisions about how we're going to live our lives. Paul said earlier in 1 Corinthians 9, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. 
And remember who our Lord Jesus is. Did Jesus live selfishly? Or did Jesus give up his freedoms for the salvation of others? Did he come to be served? Or did he come to serve? He would give himself up as a ransom for many. Our general disposition ought to be one of how can I lay down my own preferences for the sake of others that they might better hear the gospel. Seek the spiritual benefit of others. Principle number one. The principle number two that comes out of this might seem like the exact opposite. All right? So we're already going to wander attention here. But the, first, or the second principle that comes out of it is seek to be free of guilt from others. Seek to be free of guilt from others. In this principle, Paul puts forth the spiritual truth that we need not be subject to everybody else's conscience. Does that make sense? In, in our ethical decision-making and how we carry out our lives, we do not need to import everybody else's convictions onto ourselves. In fact, we cannot. We don't want to take on everybody else's potentially legalistic burdens. Just because somebody else finds something wrong, it does not mean that we also have to believe it to be wrong and act as such. We don't have to take on everybody else's moral code. So Paul gets at this when he says in verses 29 through 30, For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? Quick caution right here. For those of you who are interested, this verse is debated in all the commentaries. They all had different takes on it. It is actually incredibly tricky trying to figure out what Paul is saying here because this statement directly follows Paul saying, be really concerned about other people's consciences. And we'll get there in the context. But Paul's just been saying, don't offend anybody, be concerned about their consciences. And then he immediately says, for why should I be concerned about somebody else's conscience? And why should I let somebody else's convictions pass judgment off on me is essentially what he's saying. So it's a complicated verse trying to figure out what exactly Paul is saying. I think what he's doing is just asking a question for us to consider, maybe even quoting what other people have said, and he's just putting out the question for us to ponder, should our liberties be determined by other people's consciences? Should what we do and how we behave be determined by other people's consciences? And the answer, I think, is yes and no. Yes, we want to be sensitive to other people's convictions. But no, we cannot live by everybody else's moral code. Paul says this in Colossians 2.16. He says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you. So what Paul is saying, there's certain teachers who came along saying, if you're going to be a follower of Christ, you have to do these, 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 and these. You have to participate in Sabbaths, participate in new moon festivals, you have to eat and drink a certain way, and Paul's saying, don't listen to them. They're laying a bunch of extra, burden, extra burdens upon you. So if I said... In order to be, for you to be a Christian, you've got to be part of our two for two groups. You have to be in a discipleship group, and you have to go out and evangelize. And if I listed a bunch of things and said, you can only be a Christian if you do all these things, you should respond back by saying, you are laying a whole lot of extra burden and conviction on me. Now, we're going to invite you to those things, 
But we're not going to say, you can only be a Christian if you do these things, and there's a difference. And Paul's saying, don't let anybody else's convictions weigh upon you. Be sensitive to other consciences, but you can't be ruled by them. It is impossible to live by everybody else's moral codes. We experienced this in the last couple of years, didn't we? To just touch on a little sore spot, the great mask debates of the COVID pandemic. In essence, a medical debate that turned into a cultural debate, that turned into a theological and spiritual debate, and how many of you heard other Christians say, if you're a good Christian, and we started flinging mud at one another based on our theological scriptural inferences, although as I look through my Bible, I can't find anywhere that addresses masks. And we're all going to come to our own applications, but we need to be real careful about how we weigh on one another or take on everybody else's guilt and convictions. And in the end, we're going to have to make a decision. We might not be able to please everybody. But what's most important is how do we carry ourselves, seeking the good of others while also not taking on everybody else's convictions. And you say, well, that's really complicated. How do I navigate through that? Well, then we get to our third principle, which is one that overrides all of it. Seek the glory of God. Real simple. Verse 31, chapter 10, then also in verse 1. Our third and final guiding principle, the most important of all of them, seek the glory of God above all. Whatever you do, seek to give praise and honor to God and Jesus Christ. And if you're doing that, and if that's your heart, chances are you're going to go right. So Paul says, kind of summarizing in verse 31, so whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And he also says in verse 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So when Paul says whether you eat or drink, he's not just saying, you know, in these insignificant things, actually those are significant things in context, and we'll get there. He's saying, when you're eating and in your drinking and how you celebrate and all those things, whatever you do, do all to God's glory. And then be imitators of me, which is quite the claim, quite the command. What Paul is saying is, insofar as I follow Christ, so you. We live for the glory of God alone. In the 1600s, over a couple of years, a group of Scottish and English pastors and theologians and scholars got together and tried to compile and write a statement of faith that would unite them. What is our Christian conviction? What do we believe? And they put it in a question and answer format. So as you walk through it, you ask a question, give the answer, and that will build people up in their faith. They called it a catechism. That particular group was the, known as the Westminster Assembly, and they produced what is called the Westminster Catechism. And those of you who know what I'm talking about when I say that might know what the first question is in the Westminster Catechism that is meant to build people up in the Christian faith. What is the first question? What is the chief end of man? Which is a way of asking, what's your purpose in life? If you are here without purpose, I have an answer for you. I have a wonderful plan for your life. What is the chief end of man? Answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. 
That's our purpose. In all things, let that be your guiding principle. Glorify God. Do not seek your own glory, your own benefit, but seek the honor and praise of God and Jesus Christ. Seek the benefit of others in that as well. Leading others to know Christ, to make him known, praising and honoring Jesus. Follow Paul's example as he follows Christ and seeks to make Christ known. And what is the example of Christ? Who is Jesus Christ? Did Jesus Christ allow religious legalists to lay extra burdens upon him? No. Eating on the Sabbath and eating certain foods and doing work on the Sabbath, he fought with the legalists and didn't let them lay extra burdens upon him. Did Christ seek to obey God and not men in all things? Yes. Did Christ give all honor and praise to the Father? Yes, he glorified God alone. And was Christ selfish? Or did he lay down his life, lay down his own comforts, lay down his own concerns for the sake of the needs of others? Did he lay down his own dignity, washing the feet of his own disciples, taking on slaves' clothes so that they might be washed clean, doing what others wouldn't do, humbling himself, making himself uncomfortable for the comfort of others. That is our Lord. That is our Savior, Jesus Christ. And ultimately, he laid down his own life on the cross, dying for us. He sacrificed his whole life for the salvation of others. So if you want to to know what it looks like to glorify God, to follow Jesus Christ, it looks like seeking the glory of God and laying your own comforts and preferences down so that others may find salvation. Seeking to live like Jesus, who lived selflessly. So now we have three general principles for thinking through ethical decisions. One, seek the spiritual benefit of others. Two, seek to be free from guilt of others. And third, seek the glory of God above all. Now, Having laid out those principles, let's see how Paul applies them in the context of Corinth particularly the context of food sacrificed to idols. He's going to lay out two scenarios in which he applies these principles. First, the gray area of possible idol food in the market. Possible idol food in the market. So Paul is referring to the market, the meat market, where food was bought and sold, and in that market there would be food there that was possibly used in a worship service to an idol, to a false god. You wouldn't know, you wouldn't be able to distinguish it from the rest of the food, but some of that food may have been offered up to gods. So when people participated in idolatry and had worship services to false gods, some of the food would be burnt up in sacrifice, some of the food would be eaten at the meal, and then the rest of the food would then go to the market and be sold for people to use in their own homes. So in the market, you'd be buying food, and you wouldn't know whether or not it was previously used in idol sacrifice. So there's a question of, I know I'm not supposed to participate in idolatry. That's clear. But what if I don't know? Can I accidentally participate in idolatry if I eat idol food? So there might be some Christians who would say, you know, it's better just not to buy anything from the market and just leave it all alone. So those are your ancient teetotalers. No, we just abstain from all of it. Or should we go to the meat market and ask? Say, where does this come from? Where is, you know, and try and inquire as to its origin. Or, third option is 
Live in Christian liberty. What does Paul say? Verse 25. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So Paul's answer is essentially, don't worry about it. You may feel free to purchase anything in the market with a clean conscience. Have you, have you heard of the TV show Portlandia? It was on a few years ago. Near and dear to my heart, as one who lived in Portland for a few years. It was a sketch comedy show based around Portland hipster culture. Kind of mocking it. And it was pretty dead on. <laughs> like It's a basically documentary. Uh, but a sketch comedy show. And in one of the sketches, there's a couple who's out to dinner at a Portland restaurant. And they're looking at the menu. And they start asking questions about the chicken. Is this locally sourced? And then they ask another question. You know, is this, okay, you say it's organic. Is it like USDA, USDA organic, Oregon organic, Portland organic? And they start asking more questions. Um, how big is the area where the chickens were able to roam free? Like, what's the square footage? And then, and then the waiter actually comes back, and they comes back with a portfolio of the chicken that they're going to eat. His name was Colin. Here's his papers. And, but they proceed to ask more questions and, and say, what kind of farm was he raised on? Like, do you have a relationship with those people? Who are these people that were raising Colin? And, and the end of the sketch actually leads them to visiting the farm where Colin was raised before they're going to eat him, right? Some of you have been out to dinner with those people. Some of you are those people. I won't name names. Paul's point, you don't have to ask a whole bunch of questions about where the food came from. Eat freely, without any guilt. Why? Because what Psalm 24.1 says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It may have been used in idol worship, but ultimately it belongs to God. That Psalm 24.1 was actually used in prayers in Jewish homes. It was a Verse often recited, a psalm often recited, as they gave thanks to God for the meal. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And Paul is saying, give thanks for the meal. It belongs to him. So, as you're buying clothes, you don't have to dig into and do research. Was this made in a sweatshop? What are Nike's ethical practices? And Paul's giving you freedom, just, you know. Buy whatever's cheapest. <laughs> Buy whatever you want. You don't have to ask where everything was built, <laughs> where everything was made. Give God the glory because it all belongs to him. And his point in that is what makes you unclean ain't the food. What makes you unclean isn't the object. That is neutral. It is your heart that makes you unclean. So we can apply that to something like alcohol. Alcohol is neutral. It is not clean or unclean. It's neutral. You can use it medicinally. Have that in scripture. Take a little wine for your stomach, Timothy. Then we also have Paul saying, do not get drunk with wine. The alcohol itself isn't the unclean object. It is your heart and what you do with it that is of importance. That's true for all things. 
So as you think about the food you eat, if it at one point was offered up to idols, it's fine. The food isn't unclean. If you're worshiping as you eat it and giving thanks to him, glorify God. So that's a pretty simple scenario. You're in the meat market. Don't bother asking about its origins. Feel free to eat. What about a more complex scenario in the home? That's where Paul talks. That's what Paul talks about, verses 27 through 29. We've talked about possible idle food in the market. Now he'll discuss the scenario of possible idle food in the home. Possible idle food in the home. Here the scenario is you're invited over to dinner. It could be someone's home, maybe in a public place, maybe there's a social gathering, but the point is you're invited over. You're going to have a meal, and probably with non-Christians. Friends, family, co-workers, they might invite you over to dinner. And you have to think through, what are my ethics here? Because Paul's clearly said, I can't participate in idolatry. A lot of these meals would be maybe participating in idolatry a little bit, or at least, again, as we talked about, offering the wine up to Dionysus, or whatever it may be. So, do I, as a Christian, just say, I will never attend a meal with a non-Christian? Or, do I go and just inquire and ask, or how do I navigate this potentially tricky situation? So Paul gives counsel, because uh, there were some who would say, you should just never go. A while back, we went through the book of Acts, the beginning. Do you remember what happened in Acts 10 and 11? Who did Peter meet? and have a meal with, and was in their home. Peter met with Cornelius, the Roman centurion. Turns out the Spirit of God came upon him, but, but, but Cornelius was a Gentile. He wasn't a Jew. So Paul comes back to the Jewish Christians, and some of the Jewish Christians are saying, well, you can't do that. You can't associate with them. You can't be in the home of a Gentile. They may have offered up food to idols. And Peter's saying, no, God came upon us, Spirit came upon him, like he's one of us now. But there were some who said, you just should not ever eat in the home of Gentiles. In fact, there's a book of Jubilees, which is an extra-biblical book, which said, separate yourself from the Gentiles and do not eat with them. Do not perform deeds like theirs. Do not become associates of theirs, because their deeds are defiled, and all their ways are contaminated and despicable and abominable. So that's counsel saying, don't ever go into the home of a Gentile, don't ever eat with them. But then we look at Jesus, and he seems to eat with a lot of different people, doesn't he? Sinners, tax collectors, all sorts of people. Thus Peter was led to eat with Cornelius and associate with idolaters. But it doesn't answer all the questions of what do we do in those situations, so Paul's going to give some counsel, and he starts in verse 27. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner, and you are disposed to go, you want to go, Eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. So again, don't ask about where Colin the chicken came from. Just eat whatever comes before you. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. So Paul's general advice Eat freely whatever is set before you, not worried about its origin. But then the situation changes and the context changes if the person offering food to you or someone informs you this has been sacrificed to an idol. And that's fascinating. Because we know, we've just covered, 
The earth is Lord's and fullness thereof. The food itself is not inherently unclean. And you can know as a Christian that it is fine and doesn't defile you. But you're not the only person to consider now. Now there's another person involved. And that person has just informed you, this is offered up to idols. Now you're not worried about just you and Jesus, but you and this other person. And how is this going to impact them? And scholars are actually torn on who this other person might be. Some say that this other person who informed you might be the host who's a non-Christian. And they think, in their own worship, this food and the idol are closely associated, and there's significance in eating it. And when you eat it, you are participating in idolatry. In their mind, they would think that. So they're offering it up to you, saying, do you want to participate with us in this food that's been offered to idols? Or maybe they're testing Christians. Are you going to be consistent in your allegiance to Jesus Christ alone? We don't know what they might be thinking, but the point is, in their mind, this is idol food. This is idolatry. Are you going to participate? And Paul says, at that point, you should say politely, I decline. No thanks. Alternatively, it could be actually a fellow Christian who's informing you. Who's at that meal and saying, hey, this food, do you know it's been offered up to idols? And that other Christian might be a weaker Christian who thinks that we actually are made unclean by eating this. And this does have significance in our worship. And Paul's saying, out of consideration for the other person's faith, for their sensitivity, for their conscience, don't eat. You don't want to encourage them to think that idolatry is okay in some way. So Paul's saying, be very careful in considering others and their freedoms or their consciences and their sensitivity. You don't want to communicate the wrong thing. You don't want to communicate that participation with idols is okay. So, refrain. It's better to refuse the food for the sake of the other person's conscience, even if you know the food's okay. A while ago, I was talking with a a Christian businessman uh, who does a lot of international business. He's involved in farming out of California and the Southwest and tons of different kinds of farming and travels internationally, often to China, that kind of thing, and to negotiate deals, build business relationships, gets wined and dined a lot. That is part of his job. And as he's talking to me about it, he said, yeah, it's not uncommon that after meal's over, go to my hotel room at 2 o'clock, there's a knock on the door from a young gal who's sent up to my room, which is part of how business works. And I say, no, thank you, and I have to decline. He said, and very much not uncommon as we're having these meals, that the whole point of the whole meal is just to and get as blasted and as drunk as he possibly can, and I just refuse. And he, he said to me, he goes, yeah, it's just part of the challenge of being a Christian in this world, but I think I can still participate and engage with my Christian freedom. I just know when I have to refuse. And he said, it was interesting, he said, actually, I have great relationships with all these people because they're not offended when I reject their alcohol or when I reject their prostitutes he goes, but I eat their food. You know, he, he's not in a situation just like this where food's offered up to idols. It's just normal food. He says, but I eat their food, and I celebrate their culture with them. I don't get drunk and do all the other things. And some of the other business guys will turn their nose up at the food because they don't like it, but they drink their alcohol. He says, they respect me way more. That was an interesting conversation. He celebrates with them what he can to the glory of God. 
refuses some things on Christian principle, and God blesses it for him. So it is possible (laughs) in tricky situations where you might offend somebody else to give glory to God and just watch him work. So how do we apply this overall principle of using our Christian liberty for the glory of God and the good of others? We are not in the situation often of questioning whether or not the food we are eating is offered up to idols, so we're not in that context, but how do we apply what Paul has said to our own lives? So I'll just ask a couple questions as we close and think about a couple areas at the top of my head. Um, Gambling. I can't find a verse, maybe I'm wrong, but I can't find a verse in Scripture that explicitly says, thou shalt not gamble. However, there's all sorts of Scripture about love of money, pursuing earthly wealth, where your true treasures are, the fool and his money being soon departed, those kinds of things, which should provide us wisdom, but it doesn't answer all questions. For us, does it? So, can we play the lottery? You've got to think through your Christian principles on that. How about closer to home, start of football season? Can we engage in fantasy football with money on the line? Is that gambling? Is that scripturally wrong? Personally, just me. I would say, I lived in Las Vegas. I don't think there's anywhere in Scripture that would prohibit me from playing fantasy football and having some money on the line amongst friends and not pursuing or chasing money. So I would give somebody Christian freedom in that. But I would also say it's worthwhile just to ask the question. Not that you're prohibited from it by any means, but just worth asking the question is my behavior going to lead others to think that gambling is all right and this is a Christian thing to do. You say, well, that's pretty extreme. I say, yeah, I know, but we should live all of life like that no matter what we're doing. Is what I'm doing, I'm going to somehow communicate to others that this is, uh, communicate the wrong thing. It can't be laid down by everybody else's burdens and everybody else's convictions, but it's a healthy practice to ask the question. So as you're buying a home, buying cars, buying a house, you know, I think about this as pastors, I think no matter how much you make as a pastor, no matter how much, how big your church is, there is a limit to how big your house should be and what kind of car you drive. I don't care how much extra room you have in the bank. Like There's just a limit in my mind. That might be different for everybody, but just in my mind, just for Christian conviction and conscience, there should be limits on those things. So you see three Christian principles. How will this look to other people? How will this bear witness to the gospel? Will this serve others? The clothes you wear. You say, well, that's really personal. We'll say, yeah, everything we do should think through, what is my witness? Movies we watch, books we read, music we listen to, entertainment. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So I think all kinds of music can give glory to God. And I listen to all sorts of things that are not explicitly Christian that I praise God for. Because a guitar solo from Van Halen, it just, you know, we have to give glory to God for that. Right? It's a gift from above. And we could take in a lot of artful things and give glory to God for them. But as we do that, always asking the question, is this glorifying God? Is this serving others 
So whether you think you're alcohol, school choice, whatever it may be, ask yourself the question, is it giving glory to God? Is it seeking the good of others? It's a question you can ask around your dinner table or when you're two for two groups. How do I apply this to all areas of life? What are my motivations? Am I only concerned about my own comforts and I'm just going to do what I want to do? Or am I going to submit everything to Jesus Christ and let his gospel affect everything I do? So what will be spiritually best for others? And that's what I'm seeking. Remember who you follow. We follow Christ who was willing to be inconvenienced in everything so that others might be saved. And he has given us freedom and liberty to worship him in all sorts of wonderful ways. Would you pray with me? Our Father and God, we praise you, we thank you for the liberty you've given to us, Lord. And we have liberty to enjoy things like fantasy football, like card games, like dancing, like art. Like I believe that, Lord, that we have all sorts of freedom to enjoy all sorts of things, giving you praise and honor. But as we do that, let us be free of our freedoms. Let us not be bound by the exercise of those freedoms uh, to any end, but help us to be guided by our ultimate goal of glorifying you and helping others do the same. And no matter what we do, we do it for your name and not ours. Thank you for the grace we have in Jesus Christ. Help us to live by your word, by your law, not by the obligation of any other, but seeking the good of all. Amen.